it's, it's actually challenging sometimes for employees because they're like, hey, I joined this. It seemed like you knew what you were doing. And I was like, oh, now I go out of my way to be like, I have no idea. I do not know how to build the businesses I'm building. I'm figuring this out as I go. And, and I think that's probably the, the biggest misconception. Yeah, everybody's like, I'm taking an, I take ice baths, like the secrets of highly productive people or the secrets of so-and-so. And it's like, there aren't any secrets, you know? Um, some people, you know, it's like still waters don't always run deep. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. And I'm Sophia Amoruso. Yo, this is Jesse Puji. And this is The Crazy Ones. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Crazy Ones, the show by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. I'm Alex Lieberman, and I'm excited to be here again today with my crazy co-hosts, Jesse Puji and Sophia Amoruso, who have rejected the nicknames that I gave them in our last show, so I, I will not be saying them. Instead, I'm giving our audience uh, full freedom to come up with new nicknames. So if you have nicknames for Jesse or Sophia, shoot me an email at thecrazyones at morningbrew.com and we will try to run it back. They're, they're very tough critics. Today, here's the rundown. First, we're gonna be talking about a little known secret that is airline loyalty programs and how massive they are. We talk about just how big they are, why they've become multi-billion dollar businesses, and lessons that any entrepreneur can take away from them. Then, we're gonna talk about year-end strategic planning for your business. It's one of the most important things that you can do as an entrepreneur. We'll talk about ways to strategic plan, how we do it at each of our companies, and what you should walk away with at the end of planning every single year. And finally, we're back with Startup AMA, where an entrepreneur asks us a burning question about building businesses. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Let's do this thing. So hopping right into it, let's talk about airline loyalty programs. I was watching this video recently by Wendover Productions, which if you haven't heard of it, it's an amazing YouTube channel that does these explainers. And the video was called Airlines Are Banks. And it's like a 12-minute video. And it basically explains how massive airline loyalty programs are. Jesse and Sophia, have you guys seen this video? Or are, were you aware of how big loyalty programs were? Not to the extent that they are. You know, I was just reading about it more recently. And it's like, you know, airlines are banks. Like, who would ever, you know, think of that, right? Obviously, the airlines. Yeah, I'm, I'm a nerd. You know, when I, when I worked at Goldman, one of the biggest holdings was Aeroplan, which is basically Air Canada's. They spun it out of the company. Uh, and then, to, you know, having been a student of, of Buffett, and I don't want that, I don't want the baby Buffett title back. <laughs> but there's this, this famous story of one of the first companies they bought is this company called Blue Chip Stamps. And I think I showed you guys in the prep. I have it right here. Yeah, let's say it. But like, I literally, this is one of the first loyalty programs and it was this thing called blue chip stamps it you know if you were a retailer in the 50s you would pay this company for the stamps so you would get you know they'd pay you pay blue chip stamps a dollar for every stamp they bought they'd hand the stamps out to their customers and then the customers could redeem those stamps for toasters or whatever cool things they wanted and does that sound familiar I mean, it's the same thing as, as loyalty points especially when you connect the credit card aspect of a loyalty point so they essentially created that triangle very early on. It turns out Warren Buffett goes, wait a second, this company has hundreds of millions on its balance sheet. The market cap was like 50 million or something. He's like, I'm going to buy this whole company because 
it has all this cash and there's two big elements of it. One is I get the cash up front and then I pay it out over time via getting people toasters or whatever they ask me for. But then there's a huge amount of breakage, like 30% of the people never even, they lose their stamps. They don't come back for their stamps. And I love to use this example just because it's a, it, it's, it's really, it feels real. It's, it's easy to understand and grasp before you get into all the complexities of airline points and redemptions. Uh, but it turns out he took a lot of the capital for that they this business just printed cash for a while. And I think they, they estimate that he took it and made about $10 billion worth of investments because he bought C's candy and he bought all these other things using the cash from blue chip Sam. So I just I actually got this off of Etsy. My wife got it for me to like, I'm going to soup it up in my office. But it's just a cool way to remember there's such innovative businesses out there and, and also cash is king. Yeah. It also just reminds me how... Even when a business seems novel, it's probably been done before. It's a totally different space, but I was reading um, yesterday this amazing explainer that Andrew Chen, who's now at Andreessen Horowitz, he used to run growth at Uber. He wrote this he, this whole teardown on referral programs. And, you know, I feel like people credit Morning Brew with having a great referral program. But it's like referral programs have been around for so freaking long. And in Andrew Chen's teardown, I have no idea where he got this information, but he basically said that the original uh, referral program was created in like 55 BC by Julius Caesar, who would pay soldiers who attracted their friends to fight in the army. They would pay them a third of their wages. So yeah, like these business models and ways to monetize have been around for so long. And Sophia, in a second, I want you to tell talk about like other interesting loyalty programs, but just to talk about airlines. There was a research report that was written by a Stiefel Nicholas um, uh, analyst, I think, two years ago. And the, the long short of it is he put buy, buys on basically all of the major airlines. And the reason was that he didn't believe that Wall Street was effectively valuing airline businesses because they were just being valued on the cash flow from their operations, but they weren't being valued for the value of their loyalty programs. And so at the bottom of his report, basically the summary was all of these massive airline programs, these loyalty programs are worth tens of billions of dollars. So he valued American Airlines Advantage program at 37 billion, Delta Sky Miles program at 33 billion, United's Mileage Plus at 28.7 billion. And the reason uh, there, there's only recently kind of been interest or just like transparency around these programs is because at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously travel went down. And these airlines were losing a shit ton of money, and they needed to borrow relief funds from the government. The only way to borrow those re relief funds or take loans was to show their financials in a way more transparent way than they ever had, including their mileage programs, which are like their most profitable parts of their business. They're huge revenue drivers for the business. And so only in the last two or three years have people become actually aware of how big these businesses are. And so just to explain to people how this works, United Mileage Plus in June of 2020 had 100 million members, $5.3 billion in cash flow from mile from mileage sales from mile sales and 1.8 billion dollars in profit from the mileage plus program that's 26% of all of united's ebitda or profit and the way just like very simply how this works is there are co-branded credit cards that credit card companies have 
with the different airlines. So for example, I actually have a Chase United card. And what happens is as you use your credit card, you you, you earn airline miles. But people I don't think have really thought about who's paying for those airline miles. And the, the way it actually turns out is Chase is paying for it. So Chase is actually spending roughly, this is an average, no one knows the exact number, two cents per airline mile that Chase cardholders are earning. So that Ch Chase is literally paying United those two cents. But then that mile is either not getting redeemed by customers, like as in like being used to fly an airplane for a long time. And back to Jesse's point about breakage, some people will just never use those points, which means that United is either making 100% uh, on these sales because they're getting paid two cents by Chase and then they're never getting redeemed, so there's no cost. Or if there is a cost, it's not two cents to United, it's like, uh, you know, uh, an eighth of a cent or something like that. And so it's just amazing this arbitrage that exists because United has a massive customer base of people who pull out their wallet to spend thousands of dollars with them every single year. Uh, anything you guys want to add to that? Yeah, there's. There's a couple of riffs. Let me riff on a few different directions because there's so many interesting parts to this. One thing you, you mentioned about the one eighth of a cent. Well, guess guess who controls how the inventory is redeemed in an airline? The airline. <laughs> so when their seats are emptier, they try to get more mileage ticket flights because it's cheaper. It's basically incrementally a cost of zero to them, right? If an airplane is flying and it's going to go and there's a seat empty, they should sell it for whatever points they can get because those points, they come back in value from them. So that's a really interesting and cheap way that airlines can redeem it. There's inflation in these programs where they make the points worth less, which is just purely bottom line to them. But there's two other angles I think that are just fascinating here. One is let's not forget about how amazing the credit card business is. So every time, you know, Chase gets a swipe, they take two to 3% of that transaction from the retailer, from whoever they're taking it from. From that, they then pay out to the airline or wherever. Sometimes you have these cash back cards. It's all the same thing. Those rewards going back to people are just a, they're getting revenue from, you know, from one side and then they're paying that out as a cost to get it. These mileage, but the last thing that's kind of crazy is these mileage, part of the reason these programs have become so big is the mileage credit cards are a new, a new phenomenon. Amex was like on this hustle for decades, not doing anything with it. And you know, it's become such a big deal that I don't know if you guys remember this, but 15 years ago, if you had an Amex Platinum, you could get into any lounge in the airport. Every airline partnered and said, you can use the lounge, no big deal. Then the airline said, wait, I have my own credit card. I'm going to build a lounge. You know, you can't use this Amex. And it got to the point where now Amex is making lounges because all the airlines are blocking them out with the exception of Delta. So like this whole like loyalty, you know, rewards, like it's, it's so big that that's where the Centurion lounge strategically comes from. Like it's a crazy thing that it's become such a big business that it's led Amex to like start building lounges and all these airlines to start having their own credit cards. It's a relatively recent phenomenon, but that's what's led to these things being as big as they are. And one last point I'll just make is the thing that airlines love most in this whole structure is when there are huge upfront bonuses for when you open up credit cards. So like a lot of credit cards will have, if you spend $5,000 in your first three months, you'll get 100,000 points that you can use for United flights. Well, the way that this functionally actually works in the relationship between United and Chase is Chase is paying for those 100,000 points up front. So now, like in terms of just thinking about your, your cash as a business, you're getting so much upfront cash to be able to do things with because of these upfront bonuses. So it's fascinating.
I just want to say you're welcome to these guys because <laughs> I've spent so much money on these cards and I've earned earned so much money on these cards and I'm Delta Diamond Medallion and I didn't do it through flying. I did it through using the credit card and I'm actually with someone right now who spent $15,000 on flights this year literally just to get Diamond Medallion oh my status God. and it's such a like it's such a game for people and gamifying loyalty i mean that's like that's what it is but to do it so that you don't have to pay for i mean of all the benefits right not having to pay for travel or not having to pay for business class air travel is an amazing thing so i use the delta reserve i mean it's like it's like amex delta reserve credit card it's like this purple card i have one for amaru zone co which is one business i have one for business class and then I use one personally. I have three of these purple cards and we run all of our Facebook ads. You know, it's like $500,000, maybe like $400,000 a year in Facebook ads. And through my business, I mean, I'm not sure about you guys, but I'm able to rack all of those points up. And those are obviously dollars that Delta is using to finance their business, but I'm also using to finance my travel, which is like, you know, nobody really loses i guess the credit card companies kind of lose but in the end i think everybody probably ends up making that that was one of the a sad, lot of money that and was one, of, one of the sad parts of to your point of spending a lot on marketing on the credit cards one of the sad parts of doing our deal and selling our company is before that i knew exactly where our points were i used all of our points we were racking up for personal travel <laughs> now i have no idea where those points live and i know there's a lot of them but i've been too afraid to ask but it's like, who's using them? <laughs> Someone's using them. Like, is Matt using them? Who's using them? You I know, know. I got to ask Matt in Austin. <laughs> is it your finance team? Yeah. And then I was doing research similarly, I guess, on Starbucks. And this is something that's a little bit easy, uh, easier for, I think, most people to grasp is just like, I use, I'm sometimes want my Starbucks chai uh soy chai no water something like that extra foam and i'll punch it in the app but it's not like you know the blue bottle app when you buy a coffee for example you just it's apple pay it's just like ding ding and you pay whatever it is ten dollars for your fucking matcha at starbucks you have to like load in money in increments so in like i don't know if it's 25 dollars increments but i have money and i use this very very infrequently i'm not really a starbucks person but when i want starbucks and of course i just want to like walk in and be efficient i will i will like order a coffee 10 minutes before i'm like i like walk into a starbucks or a blue bottle because i don't want to sit and wait I do that with Postmates too. I like to like intercept my orders. That makes me feel like a really smart person. Yeah, you're like, a, um, you're and like so a I have money sitting in this. Yeah, I am, and just and then this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've got like I don't know. I mean, not a ton sitting in my Starbucks app, but between that and the same thing with you know uh, gift cards, you know, and this goes for any business that has gift cards. That's kind of like the simplest uh i guess not it's not loyalty but it's your customers giving you a loan in advance that you can use to run your business um and of course on the books accounting wise that's not necessarily what it looks like but american can go spend the money that they've in some ways been advanced by the credit card company before they have to repay it right it's it's like 
something called float. Do you guys understand float? You're like way more finance guys than I am. That's what it's called, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the insurance business. Like, you know, again, Buffett is famous for understanding float. And it turns out when you're underwriting policies, again, what's insurance? I, you pay me now so that later on I may or may not have an obligation if you get into a car accident to pay. And it turns out as you scale these things, they're all super predictable. And you can know that as I, as I underwrite more policies, I collect more upfront. And now normally insurance companies are like decent and they're, they're like, okay, investors. So they put it in safe stuff. But again, Warren Buffett took that money and is able to invest it very effectively. I think that pivoting to, to, to the, to the misfits listening, like, I think why this is important for you, I think the most important thing I would, I would say is like the concept of thinking about cash in your business and getting cash earlier in a cycle of a transaction. These are genius versions of it where they're literally collecting cash. They might not have to pay out ever or for years. So that's a genius part of it. But even I'll just compare two businesses that, that I've built, you know, Ampush, we would spend money on ads. You know, we would get to the end of the month after 30 days of spending ads for a client, then we'd invoice them and then they'd get 30 to 60 days, depending on their size to pay it. So we would have to spend a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, let's say, to get some leads or somebody, some clients for someone. We might not get paid for seventy-five days. Well, guess what? That money went out of our bank account or our credit card or something, and we didn't get we didn't get it for seventy-five days. And that's brutal, brutal if you're growing, brutal if you're not growing, brutal depending on how much money you have. And I think entrepreneurs walk into that problem all the time without just getting a little ahead of it. To compare that with growth assistant. You know, not every customer in growth assistant is this way, but our, our starting, our sales team goes, hey, guess what? It's so easy. You can put it on a credit card. People go, great. Here, I want my, I want my full-time person in the Philippines on a credit card. Well, there's a little bit of a trick there. We get to charge them on the first of the month. We pay, we take the money before we pay their, their person. So guess what? We get the money, you know, that every, the first of the month is a great, the bank account fills up every month with charging every single person. We never have to think about cash or receivables. So just as a comparison for someone listening, a tiny little switch in the business model, which actually most customers like has, and there's a cost to it, of course, we have to pay the credit card, but, but it's totally worth it. It makes the business so much easier to operate and so much less stress. Yeah. I think to that point, it's like, most businesses don't have this luxury and they perform a service and then they get paid at some point later, hopefully not too far out in the future for that service. So Jesse was using the example of his businesses at Morning Brew. It's like we will deliver the, deliver the service of advertising in our newsletters to our advertisers. And depending on who the advertiser is, the payment terms will be anywhere between net 30 and net 90, so a month to three months. It's actually pretty funny because there was an article that came out recently. I can't remember who the advertiser was. It was like Pepsi or one of these massive conglomerates that they had some contract where they try to have payment terms of net 365, which to everyone listening means they they were they wanted the person delivering value to wait up to a year for payment. And so yeah, this this negative cash cycle where you're paid up front, then you deliver the service effectively is a zero interest loan from your customers. But going back to Jesse's point about breakage, it's actually better than a zero interest loan because with breakage, it means basically people who are getting Starbucks gift cards or have money in the app, 10% on average will never actually use that money. And so they're basically, what's happening is Starbucks is getting uh, lent $1.6 billion and they're getting paid $160 million to be lent that money. And just to provide a little bit of nuance, 
only Starbucks and a few businesses can do this because you're getting Starbucks dollars and you can only redeem it for goods in Starbucks. If you're a company like Venmo or PayPal, who, again, you can load money into your Venmo account, but then you want to be able to get dollars out, there's way more regulation on how those businesses can use that money to actually fund their operations. One other just lesson I want to share and then see if there's anything else before we move on to the second topic is the other thing other than just like kind of the the cash business model here is going back to the airlines. The higher the LTV of your customer, the 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 value of your customer, the more that someone is willing to pay to acquire them, right? So at the end of the day, if we go back to like, why are credit card companies willing to pay two cents per point to airlines? It's it's an acquisition cost. It makes it more attractive to get a United card or to get a Chase card because you get United benefits or get X Y Z credit card company to get uh, American points. And the reason they're willing to pay for it is because I try to look it up online and no one has any answer to this. But I would assume the lifetime value of a, an average credit card customer customer is in the thousands of dollars. So Sophia, you and I were going back on going back and forth on Slack the other day, um, just about business class. Like I was asking you just about how the business did this year, how the financials are looking, uh, what your game plan is for 2023. And so it just it got me thinking about like we're, we're at that time of year where some people have already planned for the next year, other people are doing it right now. And I figured, you know, it's not considered the sexiest topic, but I think it's probably one of the most important we'll talk about is how do you go about goal setting? How do you go about planning? I know we we all have thoughts on this, but just to, to kick it off, Jesse, how do you go about planning for your businesses? Yeah. Yeah. This is a topic I could talk about for a long time. You know, for the first few years, we didn't really do it. I mean, what we did, like me and Nick would sit and look at a spreadsheet and kind of drag the cells out and toy around with them a little bit and go, yeah, okay, that looks good. Let's do that. Which, which by the way is fine. I mean, you know, depending on where you're at and, and your business, I don't think that's a terrible way to plan and to think about your business. Over time, you know, we, we, we played with OKRs for many years and just we struggled with them. And, and I'm happy to talk more about that. And then we sort of started pulling together a variety of different systems that we sort of made our own, uh, which I'll talk a little bit about in a second. But but we really started thinking about how do we do this ourselves? So, so I'll talk about the system a little bit. Before I say that, you know, one thing I tell every entrepreneur I work with is the best planning system is the system that you will use. <laughs> That's also my philosophy on software, by the way. Because a lot of people, and, and I made this mistake with OKRs for many years, is like it became this hugely administrative burden. Nobody nobody ever touched them. No one used them. They, it would feel so annoying to everybody to do them every quarter, including me. And then we didn't really use them. Then we would just go do things in the business. And so even if you're planning as a whiteboard that you never erase for the whole year, but at least you use it and you look at it and you refer to it, like, great. That's As a starting point, that's perfectly fine, right? Um, you know, the way, the way I do it, we have a few pieces to it. The way I think about it, it starts, everything starts with what we call a desired future state. And in in any of my companies, you'll hear people say the DFS, what's the DFS and the desired future state is this future vision that you think is, is what you want. You don't have to get it. It's totally a choice. It's supposed to be inspirational, not like, oh my God, I have to do this. And typically again, internally at any company that, that I've been a part of a big part of, you'll see. What's the, what's the three or five year DFS? What's the one year DFS? What's the three month DFS? So people will start to say at different time periods, where do I want to be? And the point of the DFS is 
to forcibly disconnect people from reality. We actually want that. We want people to have an open and big vision for what can be. Now, obviously, we always equate it with uh, with John F. Kennedy's The Man on the Moon, right? He just said, hey, in 10 years, we're going to get on the moon. And he did not care the fact that that was completely impossible at the time. It didn't. He didn't have much regard for it. And so obviously, the further out you go, the crazier and bigger your DFS is, the, the more near-term, you know, it's going to be a little bit... Uh, closer so that's how we start and just for then we just flip for, the script and we say second, okay no, for dfs like what what are examples of things you're actually writing into the dfs is it specific numbers is it a little bit higher level and squishier than that like what does that look like no it's yeah it's, it's everything it's it's here's what i hope by my revenue on you know in january of 24 here's what i hope the revenue and ebitda look like here's what i think my headcount will look like here's the offerings i want to have here's what the, my product will do mm-hmm. Uh, the more vivid you can make that future vision, the better. Got it. And right now, Connie, Growth Assistant, they're all doing this. What's January 24? What's our DFS? And it's it's the hardest thing. I like. I am kind of the opposite of most people. I love that part. <laughs> like I can be in La La Land all day long. Most of the people I work with go, yeah, but we don't really know how to do this or, or that's going to take too long. And I go, wait, 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 we're not. This is just pure dream for a second, right? Dream within reason, right? You can't say the company's gonna have a billion in revenue next month or something, right? It's probably, I mean, theoretically you could, but you won't. And then we flip the script and we go, okay, now let's acknowledge current reality. Okay, so now forget about where we wanna be in here. Where are we right in this moment? What is our revenue? What is our headcount? What is What are we offering? And we wanna get really vivid. And this is actually one I struggle more with and most of my executives and teams are better at it because I like to like look at things with a rose-colored glass, but go, no, what's our actual numbers? What's our actual churn? And 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 once we have those super clear, those two, and, and there's some iteration that will end up happening once you put them both on a chart or whatever, but then a lot of the strategic planning is, okay, cool, well, how do I get from here to there? Right. And, and then we say, what are the most important questions? What are the most important doubts? What do we have to validate? What do we have to prove? And we call those, and this is something I picked up from my coach, we call those waypoints. And the waypoint analogy I love because OKRs, you know, OKRs like go hit this big goal, go get your objective and your key results. It's okay if you're 0.7 within it. And my experience, OKRs are really good when a company understands itself really well. Most people listening, me, you guys, like we don't know our business that well. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with Kahani. I don't know if it's going to become huge or the product's going to work. Like I have a lot of doubts. And so OKRs don't really work because it's not, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to predict. Instead, if I say I have certain doubts I want to prove, I have certain things I want to validate, those are waypoints. And the waypoint, I guess I'm not a sailor, but apparently when you sail, you know, if you're sailing from California to Australia, you don't go in a straight line. Instead, you kind of go first, let me go to Hawaii. Then let me go to Japan. Like you, you, you make your way through these different sections to eventually get to Australia. So it's the same thing in a startup. You don't know at any given moment. You go, well, next, I think the most important thing is, and and I can tell you some of them, like Kahani, we want to better understand churn in the first quarter. That's one of our big waypoints. And we think if our churn is, you know, if we can retain 80% of the customers in the first three months, we're going to tell ourselves, oh, our product seems fine. If it's below 80%, we're going to go, I don't think we're making it on product right now. We need to improve the product. We got to do more with the product. So that's, it kind of sounds like a goal, but it's really a doubt. It's really like a, what's going to happen? And let's, let's see where we end up. Got it. Um, and, so that's an example and by the of way, one. But that, when do you do this process typically? Like, have you already done it for next year? We're in the process right now. So the, the other thing that I forgot to mention was like, Typically, we'll have the leader, so like say Adrian and Growth Assistant, for example, she put together the DFS for the team. She also put together the current reality, and she starts to share that with the team. And this is the alignment process. The team goes, you're crazy. You're a crazy CEO. That's not going to happen. Are you? Cra- We're not going to 3x the business. 
here's why. And she starts to go, well, tell me why, tell me what are the issues? Well, we need a, We need two more salespeople and we need this. And, and it's, it's actually a wonderful way to go. Oh, great. You're telling me what we, you think we need to do to get, to make the business work. And so that there's actually an iteration process. So it starts with that. Then we iterate it with the teams and the executives from an alignment perspective until ultimately early on in say January, we'll, we'll go, okay, everyone knows what they need to get done. And, and I'm big on focusing on the next quarter with some perspective on the rest of the year. And then each quarter you kind of like focus the lens on that quarter versus trying to like, you're not going to know what your July, most, I mean, some companies will, but July, knowing July sales for any of the businesses I'm running impossible. I mean, it, right. So it's just like focus on where you want to be or which. It sounds like the way that you think about it and you didn't describe it in this way. So tell me if it's different is like, you very much enjoy the top down approach to it. Uh, hypothetically saying like, Kahani is going to do, I'm just going to take a random number. This is actually at like 3 million next year. And then let's say it does 3 million as you're planning for 24, you're going to work on your plan. It's going to be like, no, I think the most ambitious, but realistic look at this is we can do 7 million feel it's, you know, mostly art, a little bit of science. I think to get to 7 million, we're going to need 30 people. I think we're going to need mostly growth in engineering, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then you're going to have this list of what your future state is for Kahani in 2024. You're going to share it with the, the team at Kahani, and then they'll look at it from a bombs up perspective to basically say, okay, three to seven, how do we actually get there given the trajectory we're on right now? How many people we have, who our customers are? Like, is Jesse batshit crazy or is this actually within the realm of possibility? Is that kind of the, what the dynamic is? Yeah, and, and there's a couple of iterations in there. Sometimes we'll say, well, here's Jesse's DFS. Now by team, let's come up with a DFS. Hey, sales team, mm -hmm. what's your DFS? Hey, marketing team, what's your DFS that kind of aligns? It's not that different from OKRs with some different words. The other big thing that takes place is, you know, ultimately you have to come down to who's going to do what, like what are the actual actions people are going to take to try to accomplish the things that we're talking about. And so that's the other piece of it that you got to go like, well, who's actually, you know, if we're trying to get 500 leads for growth assistant, there's, there's 20 ways to do that. You could do more Twitter. You could run, light up Facebook ads. You could become an email guru. You could go do affiliate partnerships. And then eventually you have to go, well, I'm going to bet on these few things with the, with the hope of this goal. And then we're going to look at it in a few months and see whether or not we got there. And we're going to do an iteration cycle to kind of figure that, that part of it out. So there is this, you also want people thinking of a future state for the, the part of the business that they run and operate in addition to some of the kind of bottom up validation and what's going to go on there. I think for, you know, cause that you're, we're assuming that your, you know, companies well financed, that there are teams, that you have direct reports, that you're collaborating with people, and for smaller business owners, I think a lot of it has to do with satisfying your personal life and starting with that. And for me, after having been through more formal planning processes like this, which usually I'm, I've hired a COO or an executive to do with me at this stage in my career. And sometimes people are smart enough to start earlier in their career thinking about their personal goals and some what of a thesis of how they what they want to build their how they can wrap their business around the lifestyle that they want to have. And this is something that I learned kind of late because as entrepreneurs, it's really easy to let our business dictate what our life looks like and to commit to things and say, this is where I want to be and not really think about whether we're going to enjoy that, what's going to be required to do that. If it works and, you know, I've 
had a few businesses now that really work. Once it works, you're really committed to it, especially if you have employees, if you have investors. And so knowing what you're getting yourself into when you set those goals is really important. Um, and I like to start with like moonshots. So if there was no way for me to fail, like what would I do? And then also think like, do my goals that I set kind of based, you know, obviously there's the moonshots, like what's possible based on, all right, and, and what did you call it? Like your ideal state, right? Desired future state. Based on that, like what's possible? What are my goals? What can I afford? And then what am I willing to do? You know, because we don't think about, it's easy as a founder to just be like, I'm willing to do anything. And for some of us, it's just like, I'm at a point where I don't know if I'm willing to do anything anymore. And I think uh, there's a lot of rhetoric for entrepreneurs just around like, you need to do whatever it takes to get done. You're a crazy one. You're a misfit, like hustle, hustle, hustle. Um, and that's not necessarily for everybody. And you can be an entrepreneur without necessarily having to do that. Um, yeah. So are you willing to do the work? And then based on that, obviously an action plan. And I guess, you know, again, just for the entrepreneurs of one, you know, the way, you know, in addition to moonshots, and I'm going to show you guys something, which is really cool. So I have something called the flight planner, which we put together at business class. And it's, yes, it's an annual planner, but the beginning of the year does start with moonshots. And the also starts with in 12 months, and I'm going to be filling this out really soon. You know, the thing starts at the beginning in 12 months, I'd like to quit learn, have, start, stop, and do. And that can relate to your personal life. It can relate to your business life. And it should probably start with your personal life and then figure out, again, like how you can build a business that satisfies your personal goals. Because in the end, when you're laying on your deathbed, and hopefully all, we all get a bed to lay on, um, this is how you're going to rate your life. You're not necessarily going to rate your life based on the OKRs that you set with your team. And I don't mean to minimize the importance of this. Obviously, when you're running larger teams, everything that you're talking about is is really critical. Um, but I wanted to add something a little bit maybe more. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's super important yeah. because I think to, to your point, there are a lot of these kind of company planning frameworks and Jesse did a great job of hitting on one of them, but also that is just like one part of life, right? So the question is, is actually the only way to, to make the company plan realistic is to understand where that fits within your other buckets of life, right? Because if hypothetically your goal is like you want to prioritize, I don't know, family, religion, and friends just as much as work, but the, the the accountability that's on you to complete the goals, the quarterly goals or the annual goals that are necessary to hit your plan for your business uh, requires you to not do any of those three other things. Well, at the end of the day, you've just created a plan that actually isn't living within the world of possibility or reality. So I actually think looking at it from a little bit more of a 25,000 foot perspective, like what you described with the flight planner is huge. Um, I don't want to talk about morning brews plan really much at all, because I think Jesse did a, a great job of laying out how they annual plan. But I would say we do something relatively similar at the brew. We use the EOS process, which is the entrepreneurial operating system. And kind of the, the, the very quick and dirty is that there are like three or four of these systems that entrepreneurs have used for years. Up oh, there you go. Jesse has traction in front of him, which is the book by Gino. I'm reading it because I actually I've heard great things and I want to learn. Yeah, it's awesome. So we've been using it basically. We've been using uh, EOS since 
um, when was it? Middle of 2019. And I vividly remember when we read it because I vividly remember that being kind of the inflection point of the business. I also vividly remember it being one of the only times I've seen Austin mad at me um, because we were in a WeWork still. One of our investors, um, the the founder of the Snuggie, who uh, is an incredible businessman and a great operator, he had told Austin, "You guys have to read this book, Traction, because Austin and I have been talking about how we're constantly just like, you, you know, we're basically constantly just like fishing water out of our boat that's taking on water versus actually paddling forward because we're just trying to keep the machine together today." And he's like, "You guys need to learn how to think um, more proactively, plan for weeks, months, and quarters." rather than literally the next 24 hours. And Austin read it. He told me over the one weekend, he's like, you you have to read this. And I he hit me up a day or two later being like, what do you think of the book? And I knew, I knew my answer was not going to be satisfactory to him. And I was like, I didn't read it yet. And he, he went off on me in Slack. Again, very, very um, justified because it's so incredibly important. So then I spent a full day in WeWork, did no work, just read the book. The, the very quick and dirty is there's six parts of the entrepreneurial operating system. Vision. So if you ask all employees what the vision is, you should get the same answers. If you don't, it's probably not tight enough. People. Do you have the right people in the right seats? Data. Managing your business through a scorecard uh, where you have a weekly report of five to 15 numbers that you're looking at that are kind of giving you a litmus test of how the business is doing. Issues. Process and traction. And my best, my favorite quote about what traction means is um, in the book, it says, vision without traction is merely hallucination. And I just always think about that myself, like ideas without execution or hallucination. You need kind of the oomph to back up these big ideas that you have. The the one other thing that I'll share is um, a great story from the book that I feel like all of these planning processes allow you to avoid. So the story is that you picture you picture a small plane that's flying over the Atlantic Ocean. It's a little prop plane. And halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, the, the captain comes over the loudspeaker and he says, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that the gauges on the plane are not working. It's like pretty bad news. He's like, we're hopelessly lost. I have zero idea how fast we're flying or in what direction. And I don't know how much fuel we have left. And then everyone's waiting. They're like, what's the good news? And he goes, the good news is that we're making great time. And that's what it can feel like to run a business that is not well planned, (laughs) that doesn't have a North Star, that has no gauge of if you're working towards the right place. And so uh, I don't have it up on my wall, but I should probably put that up on my wall. The the final thing I'll mention, um, I have a buddy, his name's uh, Eamon. So Eamon um, was the CEO of Sumo. Sumo is a business that provides uh, discounts on software. Um, he actually took over the CEO CEO role for a period of time from another buddy named Noah Kagan, who's an amazing entrepreneur, early employee at Facebook. And Eamon grew Sumo t- from $10 million to $100 million in revenue. And he uses this great analogy for his planning process that he's developed over years, where he basically says, most people don't realize that in the game of chess, of chess outcomes can be predicted by what the two center pawns do on the board. So you have all these pieces on the board. I'm not a chess player, so I don't know by heart how many pieces there are. But the two center pawns 
are the basically the biggest dictators of what's going to happen in the game. And he thinks it should be the same exact thing when you plan in business and you focus in business. If you want to take revenue from, let's say, $2 million to $4 million, you should create constraints where you narrow down all of your focus as a company to the one thing that is preventing you from closing that gap from two to four. And so said differently, he believes that you need to always be thinking and focusing on what are the two center pawns in your business. I love it. And speaking of action, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have this tattoo. Oh, man, regrettable. I don't regret any of them, but this one's so conspicuous. It's on my forearm, but it says words tend to be inadequate, which sounds like very emo. Uh <laughs> But I very much believe it because, I mean, most people live in a world of words. And while I love words, so few people take the action and live up to what it is that they say they're going to do. And when you're planning, obviously, accountability, both as a founder and for your teams is number one. Yep. 100 percent. Um, okay, let's uh, let's finish up with a little startup AMA. We haven't done this in a few weeks, so I'm excited for this one. Let's watch the video, roll the tape of an entrepreneur asking us a question, and then we'll go around the horn. What are the biggest myths or misconceptions that people have about startup founders? I think one of them is like that we're resilient. Like that we're resilient by nature, I think. You know, I've had this journey where I've had ups and downs and people are like, you're so resilient. And just because I stick around, like, doesn't mean that I'm resilient. Like, you have no idea what happens inside my head. You have no idea how much I've actually bounced back. And just because I keep going and I'm not hiding out doesn't mean I'm resilient. It's great that people can project that onto me and be inspired by it, but it's not completely true. I'm just a masochist, right? Entrepreneurs <laughs> can be masochists. And that can look like resilience, which I just don't even. Those are like those things stand in such contrast to one another. So uh Sophia's a masochist. Yeah, my, Jesse, what's yours? I feel like my biggest misconception when before I was an entrepreneur, and then the one I hear the most often is that they know what they're doing. Like that they that they actually have some <laughs> sense, like some skill or some special secret sauce that they're like, Oh, I know, I know what's no going on. Idea. I know what I'm doing versus just like no idea. And every day you're like figuring it out as you go and you're, you're curious and you ask questions. I just think that's the biggest one. People think I know what I'm doing. They thought I like, and I now go even it's, it's actually challenging sometimes for employees. Cause they're like, Hey, I joined this. It seemed like you knew what you were doing. And I was like, Oh, now I go out of my way to be like, I have no idea. I do not know how to build the businesses I'm building. I'm figuring this out as I go. And and I think that's probably the, the biggest misconception. Yeah, everybody's like, I'm taking an, I take ice baths, like the secrets of highly productive people or the secrets of so-and-so. And it's like, there aren't any secrets, you know? Um, some people, you know, it's like still waters don't always run deep. Yeah, and not, and not all founders have ice baths <laughs> or go to uh, Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, Thank God. I, What's yours, Alex? Uh, yeah, I have a few I'll run through. I, I was honestly, <laughs> and when I say these are the biggest myths or misconceptions, these are literally just, I think, <laughs> things about myself that I'm just saying in the third person. So uh, founders love risk. I know I'm not a risk-loving individual, and I actually was very calculated in making the decision to become a founder. I think some founders have a an absurd amount of risk. So, you know, for example, I know... Um, 
like Mark Laurie, who built Jet.com and he built Diapers.com that he sold to Amazon, he put a very large amount of his money in every next business. I actually don't know if I would have the risk tolerance to do that. Uh, the second one is that founders should stay the CEO forever. I had this perception that you need to be like Elon or Bezos or Gates, where you take the thing from idea to IPO and you know, you're the captain of the ship. You sail this ship into basically the horizon or you go down with the ship. That is also not the case. Uh, founders are great role models. I have found that actually founders are horrible role models in certain areas of life. Um, and two more I'll share. Um, founders are super passionate about their business on day one. Like you, you have to do what you're passionate about or else you won't uh, end up doing it for a long time. I don't know about you guys, but I was not wildly passionate about writing a newsletter in the early days, but I got passionate because it felt like there was momentum and I got passionate because people felt like they were getting value. And that's what ultimately gave me kind of, you know, the foundation to stick with it. And I think speaking to that, the whole like your business, and I've heard this so many times, like your business is your baby. It's like, it's not my baby. Stop telling me that. You don't know anything about me or my motivations. And it's like, no, it's a business. (laughs) It's not my baby. If it's your baby, you're way too attached to it. I I don't have any babies, but that's what I would imagine. Love it. Any uh, last ones or parting words before uh, we sign off until next week? No, this was great. Awesome. Sophia, Jesse, as always, love doing this with you guys. And thank you to uh, Crazy Ones listeners for another great episode of the show. Shoot us an email at thecrazyones at morningbrew.com if you have any ideas or feedback. And uh, we'll see you misfits next week. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.